6, 9 through 13. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. All right. So uh, because of the weather and because of I just felt like it, we're going to postpone what we were planning to do this week. Uh, We were planning to talk about our uh, families of origin and and the important role that looking into our past plays as we construct uh, and move into the future as followers of Jesus. So uh, we're going to put that on hold for this week. So we'll be talking about it next week. which is fun because I, I don't think I told Ashley this morning, I don't think I've ever had two weeks to work on a message in the entirety of my life. You don't know how good I can be with 14 whole days of preparation before I, before we, I uh, share a message. But this week, I really felt strongly like we just needed to take a second maybe and talk about something that I think is really, uh, really vital and really central to what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, but something that is often overlooked. Um, the title of this message today is Requesting the Kingdom, Requesting the Kingdom. And we're going to be uh, focusing specifically, not specifically on the Lord's Prayer, but using the Lord's Prayer as a little bit of a cipher to understand what prayer is and how it should function in the lives of a believer. You know, this is an issue for me that has been uh, something that I've been almost for 10 years now, just kind of mulling over in my head. What is prayer? How does it function? What, should, what, what are we called to do with it as Christians? You know, there are certain people in this world who are just see that the, the writing on the wall, they might be called rule followers. They just hear something that they're supposed to do and they do it. I am not one of those people. If I don't have a, a, a system or a structure or a belief system that kind of undergirds the thing that I'm supposed to be doing, I have a very difficult time doing it. And I remember there was one uh, particular week when I was in seminary 10 years ago. I can't believe that that's 10 years ago now. But I walked up to one of my professors and I asked her, is there a really good systematic theology of prayer? of what is prayer? How does it function? How should Christians do it? And she looked at me and she went, she's an incredible New Testament scholar. She said, "Mm, I don't think so. No, there's not. There's not. And I said, then what am I supposed to do if I'm trying to figure this out? And she just said, well, you could write one. And I said, that's never going to (laughs) happen. It's never going to happen. But it kind of set me on a path, on a journey of, of attempting to the best of my ability to discover what role does prayer, prayer play in our lives. Is it just this thing that I do in order to get stuff? Is it just this thing that I do when I'm scared or I think my kid has fallen and broken an arm, right? Is it just something I do when I see a bad news report or there's a tsunami that occurs and I say, God, please take care of the people, right? Not to make light of any of those situations of prayer, but those tend to be the types of prayer that we think of primarily. What does it look like to be a person of prayer? And what does it look like within the construct of Christianity, within the construct of being a follower of Jesus? What does prayer look like? How should it function? This is a big question. 
We know to a certain extent that, that Jesus was a man of prayer, that prayer was something he often did. And we also know that his disciples believed it to be an important question to ask him because they asked him and he taught it on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, both examples of it in the Sermon on the Mount. There's an example of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew and in Luke. But what we see in both of these prayers is this desire that Jesus has to teach his disciples how to pray and what to pray and what their lives should look like in and around prayer. And when we look specifically at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, and when you pray, when you pray, implying that it should be a common thing, right? It should be a, all, the rote is not the right word, but it should be something that is routine in our lives. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. This is a request Jesus is saying, as a, as, a, as a person who believes in God, as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, the, the primary, the beginning part of what our prayer life should look like should be a request for God's kingdom to come. Now, this is a strange thing to say, right? That we should, in some real and true sense, be asking for God to bring his kingdom into our spheres of influence into our world. It's a strange thing to say, isn't it? That, that the God of the universe is saying, hey, what you need to do is pray that I would show up and do stuff. It seems awkward, doesn't it? It seems a little strange that God would say this to us, but yet this is the beginning for Jesus of what prayer looks like for his followers. There is this desire uh, on Jesus' part, to see his disciples ask for the kingdom to come, to request its presence in their midst. And this is really, to be honest with you, when I, when I first started like really digging into this, it was a difficult conce concept for me to get my head around because in, my default was simply to say, like, okay, God, like, just do the kingdom thing, right? Just bring your kingdom. Why, why do I have to request it? What, it? what is happening here functionally or structurally in the economy of God's kingdom that I have to be one that actually goes and asks for God's kingdom to come? Because that doesn't seem right. It didn't, it didn't feel right to me at first, actually. It would be like, it would be like if, when I was 12, if I had to go to my parents and say, can I have something to eat? Right? No. Well, I did ask that a lot because I was a, a hungry young man. Uh, I actually probably asked it too much. I still do. Um, but it, it seemed strange to me. It seemed like that God should be someone who naturally just brings his kingdom to those who want to involve themselves in it. That This idea of requesting the kingdom, of praying for the kingdom to come, of partnering with God to see the kingdom come in our midst, seems like a strange idea. And yet this is what God, this is what Jesus asks his followers to do. This is what Jesus asks his followers to do, to align themselves with God's will, and God's will 
is to bring God's kingdom. You know, God is not a God who will simply bring his kingdom irregardless, or regardless, excuse me, of what we do. Rather, the truth of the prayer that we read in the scriptures is that God's pe- God will bring his kingdom when and if his people partner with him to see that happen. Now, this is strange, again, isn't it? But it, it happens to be a truth. Requesting God's kingdom is a vital part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a vital part of what it means to be folded into the kingdom community called the church that is walking out what it means to live in the kingdom of God. It's fascinating, isn't it? Now, there's some other aspects to this idea of requesting the kingdom. Jesus begins with Lord, uh, Jesus begins the Lord's prayer with your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? It, there's this aligning of, of, of heaven with earth. But there's also this element of, in the Lord's prayer that is formational. So Jesus says, you and I pray thy kingdom come. We request the presence of the kingdom in our lives and in our spheres of influence. But also in so doing, we learn what God wants. Because we align our lives with the will of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done. To say, God, your kingdom come and your will be done is to dissolve, in a sense, my will and my kingdom, right? To cover over those things in a way. To actually make less of what I want and more of what God wants. And this is formational, to, to make less of what I want is not a popular idea in our culture, is it? I want more of what I want, right? I don't want less of what I want. I would like my wants to the brim, right? I'd like, I'd like my wants and my desires and the way I see the world to be fully realized in my life. And I would like the the will and desire of other people to not be as realized, basically, right? But to lay down, in a sense, when we step into this place of prayer, our will and our desires, and to see our will and desires conformed in or under the will of God is a really, really difficult thing. It's not something we naturally do. We live from our own perspective. We see the world through our own eyes. Our minds color everything we see and experience, kind of take those into our brain, turn them over, and make it all about us. I've quoted this guy a lot. He's one of my favorite authors. His name's David Foster Wallace. And he says, we all see the world or experience the world through our own skull-sized kingdoms. The world, as we experience it, belongs to us, in a sense. You have two ears that you take in sound through. You have two eyes that you, take, that you see through. You have a mouth, right? It's all you. And yet the invitation of the Lord's Prayer is to step outside of you and into something bigger than who you are. 
to lay down the supremacy of your will to the will of God. Which again is difficult, right? And at times feels counterintuitive, but turns out to be the key for Jesus. And what's fascinating to me about the Lord's Prayer is that it's liturgy, right? It's a prayer. It's not just something. Sometimes we want to read this prayer and we want to say, it, these, are, these are principles. So this is kind of some principles about prayer. And I think that is true. But it's also a liturgy. It's also a liturgy. It's also a rote prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And I promise you, oh, you know this, for the last 2,000 years, Jesus' disciples have prayed this prayer in a rote or liturgical way. And the reason they have done that is because it does form us. By praying it, by praying something that is not necessarily true in our lives, like your kingdom come, your will be done, not mine, it does form and remind us of the fact that we are called to put, pray, place the will of God ahead of our own will. To have our will subsumed under or within the will of God. And that is a formative thing. And here's the question when we talk about formation in, in, the, in the role that prayer plays in the, in the forming of our own hearts. What are you doing in a regular, routine, rote way that is forming your will? That is forming your desires? That is forming your heart? I watched uh, the last two Iowa basketball games I've watched. Uh, and I let my son stay up late for both of them which was a really good idea, uh, if you care about basketball. Uh, the, we've hit, Iowa, the Iowa Hawkeyes have won on a last-second three-point buzzer beater two games in a row. I've never seen anything like it. Last night's was a complete and utter fluke. The other one was kind of skill. Um, and uh, I was really, really, really excited about it. The, the other night, uh, after Iowa won their first game via three-point buzzer beater, uh, I, I let Elliot stay up, and I put him down, and, and he said, Dad, what was the guy's name who hit that shot? I said, his name's Jordan Bohannon, Elliot, and he says, if he does that again, he's my favorite player. <laughs> I said, great, that sounds, that sounds like a plan. Uh, I'm forming intentionally a love for Iowa basketball in my son, <laughs> Right? He is not doing this on his own. This is a liturgy that I am forming in his heart. He is, you know why he's going to love the Hawkeyes when he's 35? Because his dad made it that way, right? Because we did fun stuff together and we watched Iowa basketball and he's going to associate all of these happy feelings with da 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 because, there is, because he's going to know on snowy Tuesday nights in February we have an appointment and that appointment is with Iowa basketball and he can sit in his sleeping bag or he can get popcorn or, you know, on and on and on, right? He is formed by that experience and it's routine and it's rote and it happens over and over and over again. And Jesus says that prayer is the same type of thing. That we need structures or forms that, that we can fit our lives into that help us align our will, our heart, our desires with the will, heart, and desire of God. And that as we request God's kingdom in a routine, a rote, a liturgical way, we will begin to actually want that. 
we will begin to actually want to see God's kingdom come, to actually want to see God's will be done over and above our will. This is what prayer is. This is how it functions. So you see the ways that both the the requesting of God's kingdom and the partnership to see God's kingdom come works with the liturgical piece. That's my That's old churchy language for what we're talking about here. You can see the way those two things work together in order to kind of bring a synergy of God's plan and purpose for prayer. That it's both forming us so that we are people who want God's will and then we continue to pray for God's will and God's will continues to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's this thing that works together, right? The truth of the matter is, is that we, as the church, are called to be people of prayer, who are called to weave prayer into our lives in rote and routine ways that sees us weaving the kingdom of God into the nooks and crannies of our lives. And so for many of us, and specifically for those of us who grew up in, a, uh, in church, in the, in the tradition I grew up in, in a charismatic tradition, what we often think about when we think about prayer is a prayer meeting. I grew up uh, in a youth group, a fairly large youth group in Sioux City, Iowa. I had a lot of friends. We had a lot of prayer meetings. We would, uh, we would get up early and we would drive, I would drive to the church and we would pray at like 6.30 or 7 in the morning twice a week. And then we would have late, all my friends were pastor's kids. So Ashley's dad was the lead pastor and my other good friend was the associate pastor's kid. So we had keys to the church building, which is not something you should give to 15 and 16 year olds, but they did it. Uh, so we would just like go to the church and pray on Friday nights and Saturday nights and all of these things. And we would, we would weave these kind of routine times of prayer into our lives. But very often when we were in those moments, what we thought a good prayer, uh, a good opportunity for prayer was, was this thing where my emotions were stirred up, right? Where, where my emotions were stirred up and everything was loud and everything was cacophonous and, ev- and everything felt significant and we were inviting the kingdom of God to come. And that's good. And it has its place. But at times what that did was it, it linked my emotions too strongly into the significance of prayer. There are times in the place of prayer where our emotions are moved. And God's spirit works, on our, walk, works in and through our mind and our heart and our emotions. And he uh, calls us into an emotional place. Or a group of people experience the presence of God. And that is an emotional thing. And it's a good thing. It is. But in my upbringing and in, in, uh, in the charismatic uh, evangelical tradition, what often happens is that we associate prayer with the emotional experience and we have neglected the liturgical piece. We have neglected the formational piece. And when we neglect that, we lose, we, this is why, to be completely honest with you, so many people in, in, uh, in, evangelical traditions have periods of time in which they try to get their emotions all stirred up and they want to pray and they want to do these things and they want to engage with God and then that thing falls off over time because we haven't learned to build the routine rhythms of prayer into our lives because as a church we haven't learned to involve God into the routine regular life of the church. This is why, for instance, we have prayer on Wednesdays at noon. Not because, 
not for any other reason in that the church needs to be a place that prays regularly and routinely. It has to be something that we do. It's why we put it on Instagram for you and Facebook for you. Because it is important that we, as, as a church, that we hear the psalms, we read the psalms together, we pray together, we are formed in that way. Because if we don't step into that, then, in a sense, we're not being formed. We're being formed by something else. Our patterns, our habits, our minds, our wants, our desires are being formed by something else. And if we allow ourselves to be formed by something else, then we're never actually, in any real and true sense, formed by the kingdom of God. And, we're, then, we're, and then we're not able to partner with God to see all that God wants to uh, do in and through our, us in our world happen. Because we haven't made ourselves available. We haven't made ourselves available. So, that's just a brief theology of the Lord's Prayer. But I think there are some more things we can look at when we talk about prayer as a church and how it should function in our individual lives and in our corporate life together. You know, one, uh, one author that I read this week said this, God's kingdom is present wherever God's end time spirit is present and welcomed. Now, this is a strange thing to say, wherever God's end time spirit is present and welcome. The word that uh, theologians often use is eschatological. It's a big word. It just means end times. Now, that sounds strange to us, and when, we, and when we hear that word, what we often think about is kind of, if you grew up or around church, or even if you didn't, you're probably familiar with like the Left Behind books. Who's familiar with those? Uh, Kirk Cameron, right, did that. Nicolas Cage did a Left Behind movie, right, because he was short on cash. Um, <laughs> See, they're big money makers. Uh, people, I know all kinds of people who read those books. It's just kind of like apocalyptic entertainment. My, uh, every, all my aunts and uncles kind of read those books. They're just on their shelves. And um, I just want to tell you that like, those aren't, that's not history, and it's not biblical. All right? So read them. It's fine. Read a book. It's like Harry Potter, okay? Just like, <laughs> it's, not, it's not biblical, it's, it really isn't. It be, that's what we think about when we think of end times, right? We think of um, catastrophe, and we think of, like, uh, Ben Affleck flying into space to stop a meteor from hitting the earth. I don't know what comes into your mind when you think about the end times, but it's, it's those types of things. When the Bible talks about, and when theologians talk about the eschatological spirit of God, when they talk about the end times, what they are talking about primarily is God's presence with the church after Jesus' after Jesus's ascension into heaven, right? This is all it is. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit with the church in this time between when, when Jesus ascends into heaven and when Jesus returns. This is what the Bible talks about when it talks about God's presence with us. And do you remember that passage where Jesus says to the disciples, I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you, but there's another one who's coming, and his name is the paraclete, or the helper, and he'll be with you. The, the, there's the spirit of God, the, the presence of God, the empowerment of God, and that presence is with the church. Jesus says this, and, the king, and this author says that the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, is present whenever that, whenever that spirit is present with us. 
And again, it's one of those things that you say it and you're like, just like when, when I was young and I was in seminary and I was thinking about prayer, it was just like, what are you talking about? What are, you, what are you talking about? I don't necessarily feel that. Jesus is a good guy, and I love him, but I don't feel always any particular power or uh, presence with me. Sometimes my life is just my life, right? But in reality, and Paul says this, and Jesus affirms it before his ascension, and it's all over the New Testament, that where the people of God are, where the, where the Spirit of God is, the kingdom of God is present. And we are called as followers of Jesus to kind of request that presence with us. And to the extent that we are people who are dialed into the Spirit, to the extent that we have actually paid attention and prayed this prayer and woven it into our existence is the extent to which we are aware of it. Because we've kind of disciplined ourselves to be that way. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to be a person who invites the kingdom into our midst. This is what it means to be a person of prayer. So how do we do this? Like, so how do we actually then go about being people of prayer? What, what are some things that we need? And just briefly before we get away today, I, I just have three or four kind of keys if we want to see prayer become a more consistent part of our own lives, how do, what do we do? What, what type of, what posture do we take? What, what activities should we undertake? What, um, what should happen within me to, to want to pray more or to pray more? So just a few keys to this before we get away today. The first is humility. Humility. In order to pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done, you have to be somewhat humble right? And say, I might not be right about everything, right? Have you ever had a conversation with your, uh, with your spouse or a friend, and you remember this thing one way, and the person you're talking to remembers it the complete other way, right? Like, you thought we went to Dairy Queen on a Tuesday and got blizzards, and I thought we went to Pizza Hut on a Friday and got buffalo wings. I don't know, right? But we know that these are, two, these are, we know that we're just completely different about what actually happened there. Ashley and I grew up together, and so we have a lot of shared memories, but we also have uh, memories of similar events that are totally different, right? Like, yeah, I was with Greg, and you were with this person, and we were riding in this car, and we went and did this, and then she'll say, no, you were with Brandon, and we actually, did, and then we went to the pool. We didn't go to the, you know, and I'm like, who's, who's right here, I would I say to her. Like, either you're really, really wrong, or I'm really, really wrong, and I'm just going to go with you right now, right? <laughs> you're wrong, and I'm right, because I remember it the way I remember it, and you remember it the way you remember it, and I'm definitely right, right? Most of those situations are totally pointless. They're just little differences in the way we remember and experience, right? But when we come to the place of prayer, it requires a humility on our part of being willing to say, I'm not right about this, and my primary posture is that I'm not, that God is. 
even if with everything in my being I want to be right. But God is. And that requires humility. There's this uh, passage that a lot of people quote when they talk about prayer in, uh, in 2 Chronicles 7. It says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will hear the, heal their land. Now this passage is given within the context of the people of Israel who are often turning away from God and worshiping false idols. And what God is asking them to do is to turn away from the worship of their false idols, to turn back to, the, back to Yahweh, back to the God who delivered them out of Egypt and established them in the land of Israel. And when they do that, he's going to kind of reestablish or get the ball rolling of this covenant again and begin working with them again. This is the passage. So we, we very often take that passage out of context and say, okay, if we just do these things, God's going to, you know, make everything better. Which is not necessarily the truth, because God isn't uh, in the process of building kingdoms in the same way that God was building uh, earthly kingdoms in the same way that God was establishing the earthly kingdom of Israel, right? So we can't do a one-to-one -one correlation there. But what we, can, what we can take from that passage is the idea that God is wanting the people to get on his page, he doesn't want to get on their page. He wants them to get on his page. And, and for the people of Israel, what that meant is turning away from the worship of idols. And everyone in their culture was worshiping idols. And everybody was doing this. And they were just on the page of the ancient Middle East where everybody was worshiping idols and everybody was doing all these things. But God says, no, get on my page. And that requires a little bit of humility. That requires our, the acknowledgement that, comes from, an acknowledgement that comes from deep within us that I am not right. That, the, that God's priorities are right, and that I need to get on his page. So it requires humility on our part, which is really hard, especially for those of us whose brains run a lot, and who, those of us who think we're right a lot. And I kind of put myself in both those camps. Because to humble myself enough to say, okay, I don't know what's right here. I'm submitting my will to whatever God's will is, is can be difficult. It really can but humility is a really important piece. The second piece is trust. Trust. If we're going to be a people of prayer, we have to begin to trust God in some real and true sense. In Matthew 7, right after, uh, still in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, talking about prayer. Which of you, if your sons ask for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give you him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This passage is all about trust. What, what do you think God is like? Is God a good father? Or is God something else? Do you trust God? Now, very often when we talk about trust within the context of prayer, we talk about faith as though faith is a commodity that I need to build up in my heart or mind in order to see things happen, which I don't think is accurate. I don't think that's what the Bible means when it talks about faith. But what, what I think primarily when we talk about faith or trust, what we're talking about is dependence rather in identification with who God actually is. Because we all have default beliefs about God that are not trusting. We all have default ways of being in this world and acting that says, yes, I might give lip service to the fact that I trust God, but I'm going to just work super, super hard over here at this thing because I don't really trust God. This is often why Christian people uh, are workaholics. We don't really trust God. 
trust ourselves to get the job done and are hoping that God will hold up his end of the bargain. But trust is a different thing. And trust all stems from, in this passage, seeing God as being our Father, our Father, our good Father. Now, if you did not have a great father growing up or, or your image of father is skewed, there's a relearning process that needs to occur there. But the truth of the matter is, is that if you are going to be a person who engages in prayer, trust is vital. And trust is something often that we choose, not something that we feel. Does this make sense? So, um, have you ever seen those, um, those mountaineers who walk across the ladders over the, they, so if you're like climbing Everest or you're, or you're doing something like that, very often there'll be large crevasses, right? And they'll put ladders over the, over the crevasse, and you'll have to actually walk on the ladder in order to get there, and it'll be like 300 feet down. And if the ladder breaks, too bad, right? Too bad. Oftentimes prayer or trusting God can feel like that. You're in the middle of a situation, right? You, uh, it feels like the floor has just fallen out from under you. And trust is very often just saying, like, I'm going to trust regardless of what I feel. Regardless of what I feel. That's very often what trust looks like. So, that's number two. And I'm going to keep moving here. Number three is hunger or desire. Hunger or desire. So, where trust is something that is not emotional probably. It's more of an action of actively trusting God in faith. Hunger and desire is the emotional piece that we need. In Matthew, uh, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, those uh, who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be fed. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be fed. And there is this component in prayer that we, we do need to desire hunger or thirst for God. That seeing God's kingdom come and his spirit uh, present with us to see a move of God in our midst, there is this component of hunger or desire. Now, it's not something, I would argue, that we just simply stir up, right? It's not about like just... I almost did a dial, like the way you turn up music now is by turning a dial, but I mean like sliding it over on your phone, right? Uh, we, don't just, we don't just like turn up the worship music and like do a bunch of jumping jacks, or I don't know what your preferred method of getting yourself emotionally going is. Um, <laughs> coffee? Whatever it takes, right? Uh, no, this, this isn't about... Uh, this isn't about just jazzing ourselves up. It, I would argue that forming our hunger, our desire, to be a person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, to be a person who has a hunger and a thirst for the things of God, is to be a person who, when you're not hungering and thirsting, is involving God in your daily routine life, right? This, again, comes back to the liturgical piece, I would argue. That we are, we are if, you, if you're saying to yourself, like, I just don't feel God, I don't feel a great, a deep desire for the things of God, I don't really want to pray, I'll just tell you what I do. I, okay, full transparency, all right? Um, complete and utter transparency. I get up four times a week early to read my Bible. Four. 
It's very not very pastoral, is it? On the days that I come into the office, I try to get up early. And, and you know how often I actually get a clean, like, 45 minutes? Zero, because my son is <laughs> crazy person. He told my mom the other day, I, I wake up a whole movie before everybody else. I was like, no, you don't wake up a whole movie before me. You just sit there petting the dog, asking me questions. Um, uh, the other days of the week, I, I don't, I'm not as disciplined. Uh, be, be one of those days is Sunday, and I'm not going to get up early on Sunday. Friday I, is my day to sleep in, and Saturday I, I, le I let the chips fall where they may. Right? It's true. But it is the routine and the rote engagement in our lives, the patterns of our lives, that form our desires. Like I said earlier, Elliot will love the Hawkeyes because I formed it in him. It was a choice that I made, <laughs> and made and, and made him love the Hawkeyes. And if you want a hunger and a thirst and a desire, you're going to have to do things that you don't want to do in the moment to form a desire down the road. This is true of uh, love within the context of a marriage, right? For those of us who are married, you know this, that if I act as though I love my spouse, I will, I will act myself into loving my, my spouse, right? And if, we, and if we act and we discipline ourselves into loving God and prayer, then we will act ourselves into a hunger and a desire for God. This is how the human heart works. But, in, uh, but that does not mean that hunger and desire aren't a key for prayer. And that does not mean that God does not want us to cultivate that desire to see his kingdom come and his will be done in our midst. He wants us to hunger and desire for it. And there is this beautiful place, I think, of synergy where we have, um, we have disciplined our lives to such a way that uh, in the place of prayer that we are a people of prayer and we feel it in our emotions. That becomes this beautiful place of synergy where, where we're praying routinely and rotely. We're submitting our will to God, and we feel, feel it in our emotions, and that is a beautiful thing. It's not something we always need. We don't worship our emotions. We worship God, but it's a beautiful kind of synergistic place in the place of prayer. And when that happens, and specifically within the context of a group of people, when that happens, powerful things occur. So hunger, desire. And the third is persistence persistence. And this might, and the fourth, excuse me, fourth is persistence. Now this might have a lot to do, and I'll be done really quick here. Uh, persistence is all about persistence. What are you doing regularly in your life, again, to pray? In Acts uh, 2, right after uh, this new thing called the church begins to form, uh, this is what it says of these early followers of Jesus. They continue steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and in fellowship, in the breaking of bread. And your translation probably doesn't say this, but in the Greek it does say this. It says, uh, in, the, in the breaking of bread and in the prayers. The prayers. It does not say in prayer. It's, it's, a direct, it's a definite article. The prayers. And the question you need to ask yourself when you read that is, what is, what is the prayers? Well, they're liturgical prayers. Do you ever wonder what the disciples prayed? They had a Jewish prayer book, and that's what they prayed. Isn't that interesting? They didn't just, like, get down on their knees in the morning and go, God, I hope I have a great day. They didn't do it. 
they had the Jewish prayer book and they opened the prayer book and they prayed the prayers that for hundreds and hundreds of centuries, not hundreds of centuries, but hundreds of years before them, their forebearers prayed. They prayed the prayers. And so often we as Christians don't pray the prayers. We pray whatever is kind of at the top of my head. And that is fine, and that is good. But if you're going to be a person who is persistent in prayer, you have to pray, I would argue, the prayers. And do you know what the prayers are for us? The Psalms. The Psalms. We have to be a people who pray the Psalms consistently and persistently. And if we are not doing that, we are not being formed, and we will not persist in prayer. Because there are mornings There are evenings, there are times, there are days when you or I will wake up and we will not want to pray one iota. We need to be given words to pray. Things need to be put on our lips. And the way that occurs is if we pray the Psalms. That's the only way it happens. That's the only way it happens. I've talked about this multiple times, and there are numerous ways to persevere in, in reading the Psalms. There are, there are many ways. I have the Book of Common Prayer on my phone, and it brings up three to five psalms a day, and that's kind of what I do. You can just uh, read a psalm a day, and once you get to 150, you can just start over again. That's a really great way to do it, too. But if we're not praying the prayers consistently, we will not form ourselves in a persistent mode of prayer. We just won't. Now, praying the psalms is a beautiful thing. It's also something that's difficult, Right? but it's beautiful, and it's how we persist in prayer. It's by praying the Psalms. All right, I'm done. Hey, it's a snow day. I can say things like, I'm done. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. The reason I wanted to give this teaching, just full disclosure this morning, uh, is because prayer is important. It's the primary vocation that that the church is called to, of partnering with God to see his kingdom come of asking, requesting the kingdom's presence in our midst. And if the church, globally speaking, and our church, locally speaking, is going to be a kingdom church, a church that uh, weaves the kingdom of God into our daily lives, then prayer is an absolute must. It's an absolute must. And we have to capture afresh and anew what that posture of prayer looks like and what being a people of prayer looks like. It's not about coercing God to do things. It's not about driving a Tesla. Again, I really want a Tesla. I'm just putting it out in the universe. The, uh, it, is about, it is about being the people that God called us to be, being kingdom people and having a kingdom church. And uh, for me personally, um, it's something that I want to lean into more and more and more and learn more and more and more about as we become the church that God has created us to be. So that's what I got for you today. All right, let's pray. Let's pray together. Uh, And then um, if you want, I will all push you down the hill back to your houses. You can all slide home. All right, Father, we love you. And we thank you for this morning, God. Um, We thank you that you invite us to be your partners in this kingdom project of seeing your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What a privilege it is to be your partners in that endeavor. And so, God, we ask that for those of us in this place who um, our prayers are are regularly involved in uh, praying, God, 
that you would continue to form us in that, that you would help us, God, to um, become better, to submit our wills to your will, God, to weave the kingdom of God into our daily lives via prayer. But we also ask, God, for those of us who struggle, and I think that's all of us, for those of us who don't feel much like praying very often, maybe, God, uh, the idea of prayer just feels far off and distant and hard. And we're, we've all been there. We've all been there, God. But we ask that you would help us to um, lean into the place of prayer, that you would give us uh, a, a special grace to step into this vocation, I would argue, of prayer that the church is called to, that we might see your kingdom come and your will be done. Would you stir a hunger in us? Would you stir a desire to be persistent? Would you uh, help us to trust you in prayer? Would you give us a proper vision or picture of the Father's heart as we are people of prayer? And would you continue to establish prayer in our church as a defining characteristic? We pray all that in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen and amen. Sorry, I went way longer than I said I would. Go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.